And in that, that cell, I wrote out my whole, I guess, business plan. I call it a fake mini business plan, but it became a reality and, uh, it, it, was, and it worked out and I'm here today and at Combody and what we're doing now is, is hiring people coming out of the prison system to teach, uh, classes to young professionals like yourself. Class, thank you so much for joining today. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Uh, I'm excited to have you in the hot seat, given what you've done to me the last two sessions I've been here. <laughs> I'll yeah. put you through some hot stuff. <laughs> um, for everyone who doesn't know Koss' story and Con Body, let me set the scene for you a little bit. So we are sitting in a studio right now, do the time, and this is the torture chamber. This is where I had to do over 100 burpees and... Um, Towards the end of class, or at the end of class, it was stretching time, and I was done. I was demolished, lying on the floor, <laughs> and I hear Koss say, Lexi, are you dying over there? That's not even what I went to jail for. <laughs> so, with that fun intro, Koss, why don't you say what you did, <laughs> put yeah. away for it, and your story to how we are here. This is the short and quick of it. We are going to dive more deeply, but for anyone who's about to tune out, these are the important Parts. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't go to prison for murder, but I went into prison for selling a lot of drugs. Um, at the age of 23, I was sentenced to seven years in prison, and was told that I was probably going to die in, in in that space because of my health issues. And that's where like the calm body idea came about, you know, and started getting into shape. So let's go back a little bit. We have Cost, the CEO of Con Body. Cost the kingpin. Let's take it back to Cost the Kid. Yeah. You grew up in the 80s in the Lower East Side. It was a much different scene then. And yeah. your mom, it was just you and your mom in the beginning. She was six months pregnant when she came from the Dominican Republic. So walk us through your experiences and how that shaped you. Yeah, so uh, my mom immigrated over here in the, in the mid 80s. Um, she was pregnant with me, and I ended up in the Lower East Side where it was a a heavily drug-infested neighborhood. Um, it was it was the norm. I mean, I remember seeing people lining up down Rivington Street to buy drugs. It was like, it was insane to think about it now. You know, when you see stuff like that, or you, I mean, you really don't see stuff like that. But for me, it was like, oh, people just buying stuff, you know, as a kid. And you seeing, I'm seeing like older cousins or you know, neighbors or people that I knew from the, the neighborhood, you know, dealing and selling drugs and making money and having cars and chains and, you know, and that's what I, I thought was success. So as a kid, when people would ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would tell them I wanted to be rich. And, and I got into the world of drugs pretty quickly at 11. I started smoking weed and, um, and from there just got a, it started escalating. I started dealing weed and, selling coke and crack on the corner over here on Broman Eldridge. Um, but yeah, it was a definitely a different neighborhood back then. I felt like it, the Lower East Side was more of a community, even though it's still a community today, but it was more of a community back then, but dangerous. And now it's like less dangerous, <laughs> but community. less of a community, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but it was like a place where, you know, my mom would leave me on the street, you know, and she would know that somebody's going to take care of me. Yeah. Or I'm going to go to the park and I'll be out there by myself, you know, till late at night. And 
you know, I'm with like 20 other kids from the neighborhood, you know, so. Back was, before iPhones and iPads, you yeah, guys yeah, played yeah. outside. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Um, and what did your mom do? Uh, so my mom had multiple multiple jobs. She uh, worked at a factory uh, sewing little small dresses for like babies. And, and back then also she sold, uh, it was like an Avon product, but it was called Jafra. Yeah. And she sold like lotion and all that stuff. It, it was pretty embarrassing when she would stop random people and put lotion on them. Well, that's hustling. Yeah. Maybe I, I, I think I see where it comes from. I got some of it from her for sure. <laughs> And sure. you started hustling at a young age. It was more legal then, and it got progressively more illegal. Absolutely. But walk us through, when you were a kid, and you like sell cans or stuff at your yeah, local Yeah, I, I wouldn't sell the cans, but I, I guess <laughs> I would sell them. I would just exchange them. Yeah. But uh, I just knew that I was, o- I was always money hungry. Um, I would get baseball cards, you know, sell them, trade them. Um, I don't know. I was collecting like bottles of beers and cans from like all the neighbors in my building because I knew everybody drank and I will like be the kid coming down the stairs with a big ass garbage bag excuse my language and trading them for nickels in the bodega you know and that was that was like my first hustle you know and and then opening up the fire hydrant on the block you know you don't see that anymore down downtown but like back in the day we used to like Every block had their fire height. We would, like, flood the streets, you know, like Hurricane Henry had nothing on, you know, the, <laughs> the, the fire hydrant openings. Um, but it was, it was a crazy time. It was different. Um, and it was, I don't know, for me, it was fun. It was fun. Uh, I do regret doing horrible things that I did back in the day. But um, when I was a kid, I had a lot of fun. What did other kids your age do? Were any of them similarly hustling? Were they just playing the sandbox and you were <laughs> making nah. deals? <laughs> well, there was there was no sandboxes over here. Oh. I mean, you know, all we had was like concrete turf. Uh, I mean, we just play basketball, baseball in the park, um, and that's what that's what we did. But I was always like the one getting it. You know, um, I don't know. I just had this this money hungry feeling. I guess because like my mom had nothing and she would like deny me stuff and blame it on the fact that she didn't have money. Yeah. And so that used to make me angry and I wanted to get it, you know, and I felt like other kids, when they asked their parents stuff, they got it for them, you know, and, and that was like my purpose of like going to get it myself and not, you know, not dealing with anybody else. Um, you became self-reliant very early on. Definitely. And I, and I was, uh, I was jealous of the kids that had stuff, you know, I would see the kids, coming with, you know, the new Jordans to school and I'm coming with the lighting up LA gears, you know, that from Payless, you know, and that was embarrassing. That was embarrassing. So you said you played sports as a kid. Were you competitive? Did you play a lot of sports? Yeah, yeah. I played uh played soccer, baseball, basketball, uh football. I mean I played anything that you could play. You know, I was uh, I loved I loved any type of sport back then. That's going to be notable for later on. But, yeah, that's interesting that as a kid, you, yeah. you love sports. Um, and in school, you were good at school? Yeah, I was, I was really good at school. Um, I remember getting, like, straight eight. I mean, school was really easy for me. Um, my mom was actually a, a teacher in the Dominican Republic. Oh. And, and so she, uh, I learned my times tables, like, I don't know, first grade. 
I still yeah. haven't learned my time stable. Yeah, it's like I, I just knew, like, she taught, like, she taught me so much, like, even before going to school, you know, and reading books and all that stuff. And so uh, when I went, I was just so advanced that I was like, whatever, I'm not paying attention, you know, and I was, I just didn't really care. Were you the kind of smart kid who just did the work when he felt like it? Or were you the smart kid who just always had his homework done? I, I did my I did my work. Um I think in elementary school, like I always like did what I I could. Uh but when it came to middle school, I I just I was in the streets and uh my mind was like involved already out there, you know, and that was it. So walk us through the progression of how you start smoking weed at eleven mm-hmm. and walk us through then from when you eventually came to sell the drugs yeah so I, I started uh smoking at 11 and i remember kids in my school would you know th- back then we all we could afford was like a nickel bag a nickel bag was a five dollar bag and so um everybody would like chip in a dollar here and there and i would just go by philly for a quarter back then and i would be the one like going down the block to my cousin like yo let me get a bag and you know, I'm rolling up the blunt and it's like five of us on, on a blunt, you know, and and that's and that's how we we did it. And it became like more of a supply and demand for me because I was just like the middleman, like going back and forth. And so uh, one summer I saved up 100 bucks. I was uh, 12 or 13 at that time. And and then um, I decided to buy an ounce with it. And off of that ounce, I made. Uh, almost 300 bucks. It's a good return. Yeah. And you progressed from weed to cocaine. Mm-hmm. So tell us a story from how you went from there to making $2 million at the height of... Yeah, I mean, uh, I got introduced to the world of cocaine pretty quickly. I already been around it. It's It was in my face all the time. So like, uh, I would, there was a corner bodega where everybody stood in front of, you know, and, and, uh, the guys used to sell over there and I always had weed to sell. Um, and so I remember like, I was the only person on the block at that time and somebody came to buy two bags of Coke and I was like, I, I don't got it. The guy's going to come back. And, um, and he was like, I, I need it right now. Like he put, he was putting a little bit of pressure. He's like, I'm going to be out. I got I'm going to go somewhere else. So I was like, all right, hold up. Let me get that money. I'll get it for you. And so he gave me the money. I went down the block. I made a profit off of that. Um, and I just got involved at that point, you know, and it was just like, I was always on the corner and, um, I don't know. I started like a 24 hour, like block posts you know, i don't know i was just uh, i was always on a milk crate on a corner uh it was not a milk crate challenge <laughs> like i just found out uh it was just like me sitting on the block and um and not wasting any time and and back then i, I had a beeper um you know and i had the pay phone on the block so basically like if somebody's beeping me i'm gonna they, i'm using a pay phone tell them meet me on the corner uh, and that's how it worked or somebody or people just walked up to the corner and found that I was there all the time. And so I felt like if I left a corner, I was going to miss a dollar. Yeah. And so I, I slept on that corner. I used the bathroom on the corner, brushed my teeth on the corner. I like, 
did everything because I didn't want to miss that sale. At 23 years old, you get caught, right? Yeah, I got caught at 23 years old for running one of the largest drug delivery services in New York City. Um, from like me selling on the corner, it became, uh, I don't know, the, the, the neighborhood changed and uh, the whole, uh, my whole target market changed. Instead of me like selling coke and crack on the corner, now I'm like selling to like, these like hipster kids were that were moving from you know all over the country to the neighborhood you know it was not something that I've never seen before and and they wanted a party and um I was a lot of people in my neighborhood were scared to even talk to them because they thought everybody that was white that was using drugs or cops were cops so I was the person that was like are you guys, you guys are idiots. You know, I'm going to sell drugs to them. It's a whole target market. Yeah, it's a whole different. Accessing. Yeah, exactly. And that was my mentality behind it. And so I, I took it over and um, I made up like these business cards alongside with my boy uh, Joey at the time. And, and we did not stop hustling. At, it, was, it was just crazy. Was so crazy. this was all day, all night? All day, all night. We were staying up for like three, four days at a time. Um, just because we didn't want to miss an opportunity. And when did your family know that you were doing this? Did they know from the beginning? or uh, Yeah, I mean, I, they, my family knew when I was a kid. You know, yeah. I, got, I got arrested at 13 years old for selling weed on the block. And um, I remember, like, the cops called my mom, and they told them. And so, I mean, they knew back then, you know, like my mom definitely didn't want me to like sell drugs or anything. And and my dad was like, you know, he didn't he was nobody was promoting me to like, yeah. hey, you know, be out there. But but my dad was also saying like, hey, just be careful. You yeah. know, like I'm not going to I can't stop. What are you doing? Like, what am I going to do? Call the cops on you? You know, yeah. so he was not going to do that. But he just told me, just watch out, you know, and be careful. And so. <laughs> And so being careful, that too. <laughs> being in jail, 23, that's when you got seven years. Yep. And you were told going in that you had five years to live. Yep. So that math was not in your favor. <laughs> yeah, when I went in, that's when I first got, like, any doctor checkup in so long. Yeah. Like, um, the, the physician there, when they took my blood and they called me back to the medical unit in about two weeks after that... It surprised me because I was like, I would, I'm 20, at the time I was 24 years old when I first got the news and they said I had about five years to live and I was like shaking up and I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to die. I'm only 24. I'm you know? invincible. Yeah. yeah. Well, I didn't think that, you know, I knew I was out of shape. I yeah. was a little bit heavier and, um, but I was, I knew that I was smoking, drinking, and eating like just straight street food back then mm-hmm. uh, when I was in the street. So uh, my diet and my mobility was like nowhere to be found. I was just not moving when I was in the streets. I was literally sitting on a car or sitting on a corner all the time. So you started working out in prison mm-hmm. and you got made fun of a lot. Yeah, I mean, not that much. <laughs> I did get made fun of a few times, you know. They and, call you Fat Forest. Yeah, yeah, they call me Fat Forest Gump when I was running it's, the yard. It's and, clever, it's sad, but clever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
So in uh in, in green there's uh there's the box that well the box is solitary confinement mm-hmm. units and so you have like uh, the box right there in front of the the regular yard and so it's facing the yard and there's people that go out to their cages. So when you're in solitary confinement, you have a cage that you step out to mm-hmm. and you see everybody in the yard. Mm-hmm. And so they, uh, there was guys that were on their cages and they were just screaming at me, making fun of me. And I'm literally like running with my middle finger up, you know, <laughs> just not caring, just moving. And, and, uh, and that's what I did. You know, I, I, I had the mentality that, if I needed to lose the weight, I needed to dedicate the time. Did you always have the mindset where if I put my mind to it, I'm going to do it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the only time that I could fail is if I stopped doing it. Yeah. You know, whether if I'm like striving a next step or one step or just baby crawling over, like, you know, I'm getting something done, you know. And I thought that when you received basically five years you're going to die that's when you decided to change your whole life but this was like part one of the lifestyle change part two when you decided i'm not going to do the drug scene anymore when i come back when did that point come so that was towards the end of my incarceration mm-hmm. and so while i was incarcerated and this um, is seven years yeah or it got shortened to four years yeah, so I in prison you you really never do your whole full time everything. So seven years is uh, seventy months if you max out. So it's like ten months a year. Sometimes there's other prison that prisons that count the years six months a year or eight months a year. Uh, it's a whole different calculation. Um, but you could technically do your full seven years if you max out and if you do something crazy mm-hmm. um so like three years into my bed i was about to come home and I, on an early release program um so i was gonna do half of my time uh it's like 35 months at that time and um yeah i was about to be released and, and that's when like i really changed my mentality because i ended up in this altercation with an officer that that ended me in and leading up to solitary confinement. So I was in a, in a 24-hour lockdown space uh, where I couldn't speak to anybody. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything, you know. And um, basically the officer um, searched me aggressively. And This be- is during the shock program. During the shock program. by ex-Marines. Yeah. yeah. Ex-Marines, military people. Yeah, so it's, it, it's a program that uh very strict you're you're waking up in the morning you're getting dressed making your bed uh shaving brushing teeth you got eight minutes to be ready to go outside and then you're working out for about an hour and a half and but you get to go home early you got you get to go home early so and you had a son who was how old was he at that point seven yeah my son at at that time was um Towards the end of my incarceration, he must have been like five years old. Got it. Yeah. And uh, so facing not being able to go back early. Yeah, it was it was uh it was devastating because like, you know, I, I felt I was not wrong in that situation. Mm-hmm. The officer basically said I was attempting to assault him. Yeah. And I was disobeying a direct order and I didn't do anything like that. And um 
And he placed me in solitary where I was like facing a, the rest of my years in prison. So mm -hmm. I was facing another three years behind this situation. Uh, and I could have ended up in solitary confinement for maybe a couple years behind that, you know, or a new charge. I don't know. And, and so at that time, I was devastated at the fact that I couldn't go home. Um, my son at the time was around five and, and I didn't want to like continue being a, a dad that, you know, is raising that kid behind bars. You know, I remember like teaching him his ABCs on a payphone in there, you mm -hmm. know, and, um, yeah. um, it's just, it, 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 when you, when you become a parent, like it's, it, there's no other feeling like that, you know, like you really feel it in your core, like you feel it in your heart, you know, the, the pain that you cause your, your child if you're doing something wrong to them, you know, so it's, it's something that I regret it. And at that time, while I was in solitary, I remember like being in there, not doing anything. And, and all I could do is write, uh, write letters, read, you know, and that was it and work out. And, um, I remember writing this huge letter to my family, letting them know I'm not coming home uh, because of this altercation. And then I realized I had no stamp to send out this letter with because uh, you don't you don't get a stamp when you're in solitary until 30 days in the box. And so I'm like frustrated. I'm supposed to go home in like 60 days um, and I couldn't go home and uh, and I couldn't communicate to get any help from anybody from the outside world. So I remember my sister, she finds out I'm in solitary because I was constantly calling home. They knew that something was wrong because they didn't hear from me. And so my sister calls up the prison. She finds out that I'm in solitary. Um, and she was like, didn't really get what, didn't really tell her what I did. But she wrote me a letter and said, don't worry, everything's going to be all right. And my sister's like, <laughs> I call her Mother Teresa's child. She's like super religious. And uh, she she uh, writes me a letter and says, read Psalm 91 from the Bible that everything's going to be okay. And um, I remember getting that letter, reading it. And I like, it was like, whatever. And I took that letter and threw it in the corner myself. And I didn't care about anything. Um, but to get some sort of assistance on that case, and a couple of days went by. I was sit sitting in that cell, not doing anything bored out of my mind. And I decided to pick up the Bible, uh, this Bible that she gave me early on in my incarceration. So when you're in solitary, the only thing that follows you around is your religious items, um, your Quran, your Bible, your Torah, whatever you, your religious beliefs are. Um, and so I had the Bible there and never opened it up. And I, I decided to uh, read Psalm 91. And as soon as I re read Psalm 91, that said, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He is my shelter and my fortress, my God, and who I trust. Uh, stamp fell out of my Bible. Wow. And that stamp, like, gave me chills. And um, for the first time, I guess, I, I felt like there was something bigger than myself. And I don't know. Um, it really... I guess it humbled me, and and then I began reading the Bible from front to back, and I started realizing what I was doing was wrong, yeah. that I was not only affecting my son, my family, but 
the thousands of people I sold drugs to and their families. Yeah. And so I wanted to give back in some sort of way. And I was already helping the inmates in the yard get fit, work out. I helped over 20 inmates with over 1,000 pounds combined before the box. And so that's what I did. Um, I, I came up with a, with a plan. And in that, that cell, I wrote out my whole... Uh, I guess business plan? I call it a fake mini business plan, but it became a reality, and uh, it, it was out. and it worked out, and I'm here today. And at Combody, and what we're doing now is is hiring people coming out of the prison system to teach uh, classes to young professionals like yourself. So, did your family believe that you were totally changing your ways when you came out of prison? Absolutely not. My family, <laughs> um, my family didn't believe me. Uh, I mean, I've told them time and time again, you know, when I came out of like juvie and I did another year when I was 19. Um, it was always this time. And yeah, it was just like, you know, even my parole officer, I had the same parole officer when I came home and she Mm -hmm. was like, heard it all before, like, you'll be back, you know, and, and doubted me. Uh, but I told them I was going to prove it to them. And I, I was out in the park every single day just showing up twice a day. Uh, and then I was like cleaning apartments. Um, I was just doing anything to get money because I, I really couldn't find a job when I came home. Um, and that was the, like the biggest issue was like, it was, it was frustrating at the fact that I kept getting denied and denied and denied, but I kept picking up side gigs. You know, if somebody needed me to move something or pick up something or do anything, but I continued showing up twice a day to the park. I would show up at six in the morning and I'll show up like at 5.36 at night and do workouts in the park. And I did that for two years until I had like a small little following. And, and from there, I uh, managed to like save enough money, raise enough money. And I opened up our first location on the exact same corner where I sold drugs at. Um, Full circle. Yeah, it was, it was the only place that accepted me mm-hmm. um, because every real estate property that I applied to denied me because of my record. And so there was this small little basement under a Buddhist temple. And um, this, the, 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 lady, the, the lady of the building, the owner, she was very Buddhist, believed in like second chances, mm-hmm. loved what I was doing. And she said she was going to give me a chance. Um, and from there, we outgrew that space. And then we came here. Amazing. If you had the opportunity to talk to yourself when you were 16, 17, 18, 19, what is something that you would say? I don't know. You know, I, I would say, like, there's, there's other ways, but, you know, maybe somebody told me that when I was a kid back then, too. And I just think, like, when, you, when you're not fully grown and you have that mentality and you think you're grown... Um, you're going to just do whatever you think is right or wrong, whatever. Like, you don't really care about the consequences. And so it, it's hard for me to, like, talk to a kid and, and change his life or change his mindset. Yeah. All I could do is share my experiences and my story, you know. Today, Which is I, what like, you do. Yeah, today this is what happened to me. And if you want to lead down that path, that's your decision, you know. But this is what you're going to probably be facing, you know, which is not fun. Yeah, when we talk about wanting to change people, it's you can do your best to 
give them wisdom, but you can't change someone. They have to change themselves. And yeah. you went through many years um, going through that change, and it worked out so well for you. So I'm so happy. No, thank you. Um, and I think after listening to your story, something I've learned is when you think about the harmful effects of the drug industry, you really only think about the addicts and you think about the people who are addicted to drugs and how much harm that brings to them. And I've never really thought about the other end, you know, the drug dealers and, you know, empathy and sympathy is never something I would have wanted to give them. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think to fully understand the harm that the drug industry does, you need to understand it from every perspective. And you weren't addicted to drugs, but making it bigger, better, you would go to jail and then come out thinking, I'm not changing. In fact, I'm just going to make the business better so we don't get caught again. Mm -hmm. And it takes over your life, your family, your well-being, mental well-being, staying up for days, not taking care of yourself. So I think learning your story has helped me understand a more nuanced world um, and all the harms that drugs can can bring to societies. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think, um, you know, there's certain things that are are changing, you know, like, you know, marijuana is being legalized now. And like, I just think if I would have not got caught you know, it it was it was just weird. I got caught with marijuana dealing it back then, and mm-hmm. and that led me through to the spiral. Yeah. You know, because it was all like in one bucket. Yeah. You know, now that it's separated, you know, that is is different. Oh, you could do weed. You could, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and it's okay. Um, back then, it was just like, you know, if I smoked weed, my my mom thought I was I had the devil in me. You know, <laughs> especially like Dominican moms. They, yeah. They had like my grandmother's Mexican would be yeah. the same. Oh, they had like the Santeria come through. Oh. You know what I mean? And, and they thought they were gonna Prayer bring the group devil. All day yeah. for, yourself. <laughs> for the people who are listening, you should also be watching this on YouTube. But we are holding so good smoothies, and I want to end with a little toast. Um, I want to thank you so much for joining and for being such an inspiration. I first found out about you three years ago when my sister took your class, and she's like, Lexi. This is the hardest class you will ever do. You need to come. And it took me three years to build up the nerve. Um, And I've come two weeks in a row. uh, So I love it. And we're a company dedicated to making positive contributions in our society and in our environment through things as small as snacks, smoothies, and stories that people tell. What words do you have to give to viewers on actions you can take today to start changing your life for the better? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the biggest thing is changing your perception. You know, if you don't like something, uh, but you've never tried it, try it. You mm-hmm. know, if you don't like somebody that's formerly incarcerated, like, because you, the media has always been like, this person is a locked up predator or, you know, uh, whatever, you know, an animal, you know. So, like, try to speak to that individual or try to meet somebody that's been in that that space um and you might change your perspective you know Mm -hmm. you might be like oh this person's not that bad and that's that's the whole goal of what we do at combody is to really try and change that perception of what we see formerly incarcerated people uh, who they are whether they committed a violent crime or a non-violent crime Mm -hmm. you know i think people are redeemable and 
And it's like, you know, when you look at something like your, your vegetables as a kid, you're like, oh, it looks disgusting, but you never tried it. And yeah. once you try it, you're like, oh, it's not that bad, you know? Yeah. Um, so. so come to Khan Body. He's not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for your time. No, Salud. Thank you, Lexi. Yes. <laughs> Cheers.